Well, good morning to those of you who are here at Latham. Good morning to those of you who are joining us at Grace's website. And good morning and welcome to those of you joining us on YouTube. Boy, how about YouTube? What a strange and fascinating world YouTube truly is. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I've found myself sort of scrolling through YouTube and I'll come across some random suggested video that maybe has 5 million or 10 million or 20 million views. And honest to goodness, it is sometimes some of the most boring or bizarre content I could ever envision. And yet there it is, 10, 20, sometimes 100 million views. Uh, For instance, think about unboxing videos. If you don't know what an unboxing video is, an unboxing video is where someone opens up the contents of a box or package for their viewers to see the contents that are inside. Now, to be totally candid with you, even when I pick out a gift and pay for it and I'm watching someone open it, I tend to tune out a little bit and find it hard to pay attention, but there are millions of people on YouTube who watch total strangers open up different boxes. Check out this uh, screenshot on your screen here of someone opening up a Paw Patrol toy. It has been viewed millions and millions of times. Or what about ASMR? If you're unfamiliar with ASMR, I envy you. Uh, And believe it or not, ASMR is a real thing. It's a genre of video where people talk, whisper, chew, or make any number of noises into a microphone for their viewers. And again, at the Saxon household, if one of our girls is smacking or chewing loudly at the table, my wife will give them the death stare. But unlike us, apparently there are millions and millions of people who love watching other people smack and whisper into microphones online. Check out this screenshot we have up here of some gentleman chowing down on chicken nuggets, slurping up noodles. The video, I think, is like 13 or 14 minutes long. Again, viewed millions of times. Or how about this next video? This is the second most viewed video on all of YouTube, and it's a song But it may not be a song you would think. It's not exactly a classic in my book. No, the second most viewed video on all of YouTube is Baby Shark. Now, what's funny about this is if you consider all these views for all these kinds of somewhat strange videos and compare them to, say, our fourth video here on the screen. In this fourth screenshot, we see a video that is one minute in length, put out there by a medical group, and it provides instructions on how to perform CPR. How helpful is that? I mean, this could literally be the difference between life and death for your roommate or your child or your spouse, and yet, yet, it's only been viewed 20,000 times. You could probably draw all kinds of conclusions from people's viewing habits, but one thing is certain. We human beings sure seem to pay attention to the wrong things. I mean, videos about how to pay off debt only get a few hundred thousand views, while videos about cute kittens have views in the billions. I'll say it again, we human beings are bad at knowing what we should pay attention to, and it's almost as if our filtering system is somehow broken, that we go through life and we're like, I'm gonna eat the bones and spit out the meat. 
I'm going to throw the baby out and hold on to the bath water. I'm going to spray Roundup on this raspberry bush, mistaking it for an intrusive weed. Our filtering system is broken. And it's not hard to see if you go through life relying on that broken filtering system to know what to pay attention to or what to learn, you are setting yourself up for all kinds of trouble and pain. I mean, imagine, if you will, for just a moment, an 18-year-old young woman. Let's say that she's entering into the real world for the very first time, but instead of a more traditional education, let's say in this imagined scenario that this young woman, from the time she was in kindergarten till she was 18, what if she only studied those subjects in school that were easy or immediately interesting? What would happen if she never learned math or grammar, but went out into the real world because she just paid attention to those things that were shiny, exciting, or easy? Well, it's not hard to imagine how unbelievably vulnerable she would be going out into the real world and how unbelievably ignorant. And yet, unfortunately, those words, vulnerable and ignorant, describe way too many Christians in the church. You see, I saw a survey a couple weeks ago that indicated 30%, 30, 30%, not of random sample or random Americans, but of 30% of evangelicals denied that Jesus is God. So today, I want to urge you to please not listen to your broken filtering system. That broken filtering system that may say, a topic about Jesus being God, that seems kind of boring. I'm just going to check out. Don't listen to that broken filtering system that may say, this whole idea about Jesus being God seems confusing and overly theological. It doesn't seem all that practical to my day-to-day life, so I'm just going to make my fantasy lineup changes now. I urge you not to listen to that broken filtering system, but instead to join with me in seeing how God's word answers the question, is Jesus really God? Last week, Pat Morata preached an amazing sermon, and he pointed out the fact that one of the things that differentiates the Christian faith from all other faiths is that Christians alone believe we are made right with God or are saved from our sins by grace. We do not think you can be saved by your works, your merit, or your deeds. Rather, Christianity stands alone in saying we are saved by grace and grace alone. Well, similarly today, as we answer this question, we're going to see that when the question comes to us, is Jesus really God? We're going to answer that and say yes, and it also is going to put us in a camp all of our own because every other religion out there at one point or another will deny that Jesus is God. You can take traditional Judaism, for instance. I'm sure you can find many Jewish people that would maybe esteem Jesus, uh, maybe believe he was a great teacher or a wonderful first century rabbi, but whether you're talking to a reformed, conservative, or orthodox Jewish person, they would all passionately deny that Jesus is God. In fact, to them, it's blasphemous to say that Jesus is God, and it's idolatry to worship Jesus as God, because after all, no matter how great he may have been, in their view, he was simply a man. 
In fact, some people have speculated that this whole idea about the Messiah or Christ being God, about Jesus being God, that's not even in the Old Testament at all. That's sort of made up by the Apostle Paul or kind of constructed out of thin air in the New Testament. But today we're going to see, first of all, one of the reasons we know that Jesus is really God is because the Old Testament assumes it. We're going to look at two passages from the Old Testament, but before we do that, let's do a brief review of what the Old Testament actually is. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, the first 39 books of the Bible are the Old Testament. It's Genesis to Malachi. It's written about over the span of a thousand or so years, starting with Moses, going through the prophets. And here's what's important to know about the dating of the Old Testament. Religious and non-religious scholars agree that the Old Testament was completed hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And what's fascinating about that is there are many predictions in the Old Testament about the life of Jesus, about his death, and his resurrection that he fulfills centuries after they were written down and predicted. And among those predictions about Jesus, many of them assume or imply or certainly set the conditions for the fact that the coming Messiah, the coming Christ that the Old Testament prophets wrote about and anticipated was more than just a man. So we'll jump into our first Old Testament passage today and we'll see that the Old Testament assumes the fact that Jesus is God. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, says the following. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah, writing about 700 years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, is given this revelation by God that the leader that is to come, the Messiah, the Jewish Savior, when the Messiah comes, although he will be a man in Micah's future, it says his goings forth are from of old or from eternity. And you may read that and scratch your head and wonder, what on earth is going on here? Well, what Micah is saying is this leader that's going to be born In Bethlehem, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, he's going to be born in Micah's future from his point of view, but this person who is in Micah's future has origins back in ancient times or in eternity. In other words, this Savior, this Messiah that's going to be born is going to be someone who is pre-existent without beginning, eternal. Or how about the apostle, excuse me, the prophet Isaiah writing around the same time, about 700 years before the birth of Jesus in chapter 9, verse 6. He too is given revelation from God about the coming Messiah. And it says this, speaking about Jesus who was to come. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again, 700 years before Jesus is born, God reveals that the coming Messiah will not be merely a man, for his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Now, when you think about who is the everlasting Father, who is the mighty God, we can be totally confident that we're talking about someone who wasn't merely a man. You see, the Old Testament assumes that the coming Messiah, that is Jesus, while he is man, is not merely man, but rather is something more, to be specific, God in the flesh. But you see, if all we had was the Old Testament, we might feel like we're on some shaky ground here. I said the Old Testament assumes or implies that Jesus is God, but it's not crystal clear necessarily. The good news is, in addition to the evidence that the Old Testament assumes the fact that Jesus is God, we also know that Jesus is God because the apostles asserted it. The second reason we know that Jesus is really God is the apostles asserted it. Now, Jesus' earliest and closest followers were his disciples, and from among those, we have what are called the apostles. And we have their testimony written in the New Testament. And on virtually every page of the New Testament, we see it is crystal clear that Jesus is God. The Apostle Paul makes that clear time and time again. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who wrote the first three Gospels in the New Testament in your Bible, all make it very clear. But I think this is an important point here because we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is four eyewitness testimonies about the life of Jesus. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, while they talk about who Jesus is, his identity, they really focus more on his deeds and teaching. In contrast, the Apostle John, while he also talks about the deeds and teachings of Jesus, the Apostle John really focuses on who is this Jesus after all? John wants to focus on the identity of Jesus, and so everything in his gospel, beginning, middle, and end, is all building this case that Jesus is God. Let's see the first few verses in the gospel of John and see how he establishes and starts his writing about Christ. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 say, In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, if you read the entirety of the first chapter of John, it will be crystal clear that John, when he says the word, is referring to Jesus Christ. It's obvious if you read through the rest of this chapter who he's speaking of. But if you look in these verses, it's important to realize John's really making two important statements here. The first statement is this, in the beginning was the word or Jesus, and Jesus was and is God. These are literally the first words out of the mouth of John. He says, here's what you need to understand if you're going to make sense of my entire gospel. You're going to have to understand that Jesus is fully God. He's not a man. He's not a guru. He's not a rabbi. He's not an angel. He's not an archangel. He is God. And he makes this even more clear by saying nothing that has ever been created has been created apart from Christ. So John starts his entire gospel with this proclamation that Jesus is God. Jesus was there in the beginning, and all things that were made were made 
through Jesus. But he also makes a second statement that's important for us to understand if we're going to be clear on exactly what he's trying to communicate. Back in John 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Did you catch that? John's saying two things. He's saying Jesus was slash is God, and he's also saying Jesus is with God. We may think to ourselves, what on earth is going on here? What is John talking about? It's very simple. What John is saying is that while Jesus is fully God, Jesus, who is God the Son, is not the same person as God the Father. He's making a distinction between God the Father and God the Son. And a lot of Christians get really confused about this. In fact, there's been confusion about this going back to the first century, and there's been church council after church council debating and exploring this. But there's basically this idea that some Christians have that is incorrect, that God sort of is a shapeshifter. And sometimes in history, he shows up as God the Father, and at other points in history, he kind of shows up as God the Son, or he shows up as God the Holy Spirit, and that's just sort of how God works. It's like that Trinity analogy you may have heard. The Trinity is like water. It can be ice, it can be liquid, it can be a gas or vapor, and uh, that's how a lot of people think about the nature of God. It's incorrect. John's making this crystal clear at the beginning of his gospel. While Jesus is 100% God, God the Son, Jesus, is not the same person as God the Father. And this is consistent with what all the other New Testament writers said as well. You can see in Jesus's earthly ministry that he regularly prays to God the Father. Well, if Jesus is the Father, he's talking to himself in this kind of weird schizophrenic way. No, God the Son is praying to God the Father. Or what about the baptism of Jesus? If you read about the baptism of Jesus, Jesus, God the Son, is baptized by John the Baptist, and at the same time, the Holy Spirit appears as a dove, and God the Father speaks out of heaven. You've got all three present there. God the Father speaking out of heaven, the Holy Spirit showing up as a dove, God the Son, and Jesus being baptized. They are three distinct persons, yet they are one. And this chart up on the screen, I think, may be a visual representation of how best to think about this in light of all the evidence in Scripture. Because you'll see in this chart that the Son is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. So John, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, starts his entire gospel by saying, here's the foundation upon which I'm going to build everything. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus is God, and Jesus is with God. But not only does the Old Testament assume that Jesus is God, and not only do the apostles assert that on virtually every page of Scripture, third and finally today, we're going to see that we know that Jesus is really God because the deeds of Christ authenticated it. The deeds of Christ authenticated the fact that Jesus is really God. Because this is kind of strange, but it's not all that uncommon for people to claim that they're God. It's not all that uncommon for people to say, this guy or this girl over here, they're God. I mean, you can just do a sweep through history. You can see Julius Caesar viewed as God. Holly Selassie, Mayor Baba, Charles Manson, all of these people were viewed 
as God. And it's one thing to claim that you are God. It's another thing entirely to authenticate it. But that's precisely what Jesus does through his deeds recorded in the Gospels. I mean, think for me, with me for a moment about the nature of God. You know, if we think about describing God, three of the basic beliefs most people have about God would be that God is all-knowing, that is, he is omniscient, that he is everywhere at once, he's omnipresent, and third, he is all-powerful, he is omnipotent. And we're going to see that each of those characteristics, while true of God the Father, are equally true of Jesus, God the Son. Take, for instance, the omniscience of God. We can see in the Old Testament that this is clearly taught. First Chronicles 28, verse 9 says, And you, Solomon, my son, knew the God of your father and serve him. Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. This means that God knows everything that there is to know. God cannot acquire new facts or data or information. He knows the thoughts and hearts in my mind and yours and yours. He knows who's going to be elected in November and who is going to replace that person four or eight years after that. God knows all things, and so does Christ. Early on in Jesus' ministry, he's getting a lot of followers that are kind of following him for the wrong reasons. They have this superficial kind of allegiance to him. And listen to what we read about Jesus and his omniscience here in John chapter 2, picking up in verse 23. It says, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. See, this is kind of rhyming with what we saw about God the Father, knowing what's in someone's heart. God is omniscient, and we see in John chapter 2, the same is true of Christ. What about omnipresence? What about this idea that God is everywhere at once? Again, clearly taught in the Old Testament. Psalm 139, picking up in verse 7, I can never escape from your spirit. This is the psalmist talking to God. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. Same is true of us today. You can go to Idaho, God will be there. You can get drafted by the Space Force and get deployed to Jupiter, I suppose, and God will be there too. Our Chinese brothers and sisters that are 12 hours ahead of us right now, if they're having a midnight Bible study right now, guess what? God is in their midst. And the same is true of Christ. We don't have time to look at all these examples, but you can see in the calling of Nathaniel that Nathaniel is under this fig tree and Christ reveals to him, hey, I saw you there. How did that happen? Nathaniel's mind is blown, seems to be indicating the omnipresence of Christ. Or what about the fact that Jesus said, where two or more are gathered, there I am in their midst. Those brothers and sisters in China, if they're having a midnight Bible study right now, Christ is in their midst. Us, 
that are gathered together at Grace Fellowship right now, mid-morning, Christ is in our midst. How does that happen? Christ is omnipresent. What about before Christ ascended back to the right hand of the Father after his burial and resurrection? He gives the church its marching orders and he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, making disciples of all people, teaching them to obey everything I commanded and baptizing them. Christ gives this charge to the church and as he is about to ascend back to the right hand of the Father, he gives us this promise that's still true 2,000 years later, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God the Father, omnipresent. God the Son, also omnipresent. What about omnipotence? What about the idea that God is all-powerful? Is this also mirrored in the life of Christ? Well, again, let's look at an Old Testament example to see how it applies to God the Father, and we'll see if it applies to Christ. Psalm 65, verses five through seven say, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. Here it's clear, God the Father has created all things. He establishes mountains. He can calm raging seas. You know, that sounds a little familiar in the New Testament. If you're familiar with the ministry of Jesus, you know that he too calmed the seas, the Sea of Galilee in particular. We know that Jesus changed the water into wine, demonstrating his omnipotence. We know that he opened the eyes of the blind. He cleansed lepers. Jesus has performed miracle after miracle after miracle, making it undeniable that Jesus is omnipotent and all-powerful. But there's one amazing demonstration of his power that trumps all others. You see, for Jesus, the greatest evidence and proof that he truly is God is the fact that he raised himself from the dead. In fact, in our closing time together, we're going to see in just a moment at the end of John's gospel how significant the resurrection was for proving the fact that Jesus is God. We saw a little earlier that John the Apostle starts out his gospel with saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God and was with God. And in a moment, we're going to look at chapter 20, where he drops the mic, bookends his gospel, and wraps everything up, that he ends with this crescendo with the same pronouncement that Jesus is God. You see, after Christ had been crucified and was in the tomb for three days, after he was raised, he presented himself on multiple occasions to different audiences of people, and his closest followers, minus Judas and Thomas, saw the Lord in his post-resurrection body and glory. And essentially what happened is the disciples, when they see Jesus is raised from the dead and he has defeated death and the grave, they are on cloud nine. And they rushed to tell their friends. And Thomas, one of the disciples, happened to not be present for that. 
So they go to Thomas and they tell Thomas, Thomas, it's unbelievable, it's true. He really is risen from the dead. What the women said is true. And Thomas replies, whatever you say, guys, unless I see it with my own eyes and touch it with my hands, I'm not believing a word of this. It's utter nonsense. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, picking up in verse 26, says, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Get over here, Thomas. Put your fingers here. See my hands, put out your hand, do not disbelieve, but believe. And what does Thomas say? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Because Thomas and all the other apostles remembered what Jesus said early on in his ministry. You see, Jesus would get into these discussions and arguments and conflicts with the religious leaders time and time again. And at one particular point in time, they were upset with Jesus because he was cleansing the temple. He was teaching with authority. He was saying things like, I am, and I am the son of God, and I and my father are one. And the religious leaders confronted Jesus and in essence said, who the heck do you think you are? On what basis are you making these ridiculous claims? You poor Nazarene. If you're God, what proof are you gonna give us that you're God? And Jesus says, here's the proof I'm gonna give you, picking up in John chapter two. Jesus answered them, here's the proof. You want it? This is the evidence. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you rebuild it or raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, for the apostles, they said to themselves, if this guy is born who meets all these predictions in the Old Testament, where he's born, how he ministers, what tribe he comes from, how he's gonna be rejected, how he's gonna die, if this man can predict his manner of death, predict how long he's going to be in the tomb, predict that he will raise himself from the dead three days later, then this must be God. And that is why they believed. Was Jesus really God? Is Jesus really God? The Old Testament assumes it, the apostles asserted it, the deeds of Christ authenticated it. Jesus isn't merely a man or just another prophet 
or great sage or rabbi. He's not just an angel or an archangel or some other created thing. Rather, Jesus is mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Word made flesh, light of light, very God of very God. Please pray with me. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Lord. If, if you had not sent him and we did not have your word recording his teachings, his deeds, his character, his attributes, Lord, then we would be like someone left in the dark, groping around, trying to understand what you were like, but utterly helpless. God, in your love, you sent your son the radiance of your glory, the exact representation of your nature so that we might know your goodness and your grace, your justice and holiness and how they fit together perfectly in the person of your son. God, I pray that today you would help us love Christ more than we did yesterday. Help us glorify him more by our words and our thoughts, our attitudes and our deeds than we did yesterday. And God, give us a hunger for your word and your truth, not just the parts that are easy or immediately entertaining, Lord, but all of it, knowing that you never waste a syllable and all of it is needed for us to grow in the knowledge and truth of your son. It's in his name we pray, amen.